It's a holiday weekend, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to get you a podcast. So I got some quick thoughts on athletics, what we used to call student athletes, before I get into a great interview that we were able to get this week. And let's get right into it. It was great to see college football return, full schedule, Labor Day weekend, holiday weekend, means you can cozy up to the TV, check out whatever game you want. No doubt the game of the weekend that had the internet's buzzing was the Colorado Buffaloes taking down last year's college football playoff runner-up in the TCU Horned Frogs. Buffaloes being led by one of the most charismatic football players of all time in Dion Prime Time Sanders, now rebranded as Coach Prime. And it was great to see him have success given how much constructive criticism, let's call it that, that he has taken on since becoming Coach Prime in Boulder. After leaving Jackson State, which also caused a lot of discussion. But he went out and he won. And he won after recreating his whole roster, pretty much. 41 folks that Coach Prime effectively sent into the transfer portal. He was honest about it. It's on video, him telling his roster in their first meeting that many of them should look to go elsewhere because he was bringing new people with him from all over, starting at the quarterback with his own son, who delivered on Saturday 510 yards, four touchdowns. He was bringing his other son at defensive back, 10 solo tackles. And he was bringing one of the best players in college football for his class, who played both sides of the ball, And not just caught 11 passes, but also had an interception. We're going to be hearing about Travis Hunter in the Heisman race. So all that worked for Coach Prime. And they sold out the spring game. Unprecedented in Colorado Buffalo's history. But the academic in me can't help but think about those 41 players who had to find other homes, who came to Colorado thinking that they would have a home for the next number of years. Among those in the exiting group were a number of rising sophomores who had just gotten to Boulder and previous recruiting classes. And just because you get into the transfer portal doesn't mean that you're going to find a home. And that means now you have to think about the finances of going to college and trying to earn your degree. So for someone who grew up, you know, an Olympic sport participant swimming, you know, it, it, it doesn't sit right with me that in the name of winning and the money that comes with winning and the exposure, going to college now to participate in athletics is truly about business. It is truly a business deal. Student athletes are now literal mercenaries for hire and you have to act accordingly. 
and it hits home even more because the Dimplebone in our household is, is on his recruiting journey. And we just have to take that into consideration as a family that wherever he lands, given what happens with the coach, there's a potential that where he starts may not be where he finishes. And talking about starting and finishing, I want to get into the movement of whole colleges from conference to conference, which is also a phenomenon now taking over college sports in the name of money. We'll get into that next. Okay, so we started out talking about Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, and the Colorado Buffaloes. Exciting win this weekend and how that win was built on a mass exodus of players allowing Coach Prime to bring in new players. And I want to move to the institutional level where we saw this week Stanford and Cal, University of Cal Berkeley, get their life raft off of the crumbling Pac-12 island, landing in the Atlantic Coast Conference. Which is crazy to think about the idea that you have two schools literally on the Pacific Ocean in the Atlantic Coast Conference. And again, it just underscores for me the level at which cash rules in athletics these days. There are no longer people thinking about the impact on the academic life of students. It's all about what is possible given the athletic exploits of students. And as much as I love sports, it's really hard to swallow anymore the notion that these are institutions of higher learning. It's almost like if you get a degree now as a student athlete, that's that's an afterthought. It's can you do enough in your chosen athletic venture to get paid either by NIL, capitalizing on your name, image, and likeness, or you find a way to become a professional. Getting a degree is no longer the main goal. And yeah, it may sound a little old school, because I am, but I just continue to know that at some point, the ball will stop bouncing, the knees do give way, sometimes either by just wear and tear or sometimes by injury. And you will have to do something else. So the notion that you don't have to have some training and some other thing besides your sport is still important. But that's not what the college is doing. And the movement of Stanford and Cal to the ACC so that they have a conference home and to that ESPN now has West Coast markets that they can put on TV 
for football and basketball while entertaining just makes it perfectly clear that it's all about the money. As exciting as it will be in my sport to know that there will be a UVA Cal, a UVA Stanford dual meet, swim meet, you can't tell me that's great for those swimmers who have to travel from the Bay to the East Coast, swim to meet, and then go back and have to go to class. That's just not ideal logistics. So, it will make it harder to watch college athletics knowing that all that is going on. But I hope that all those who enter into these institutions do it with clear and sober eyes. And it'll be interesting to see if it does have an impact on recruiting. The students will continue to, to choose to go to Stanford as the elite student academic, student athlete academic institution that has been the brand for many, many years. I'll be very interested to see that. How will that brand, how will that athletic department, which has been one of the best if you look at it across sports, Cal also very strong when you look at the athletic, the, excuse me, Olympic sports, how will that hold up now that they're in the ACC? Very interesting to see. How long will some of the powers in the ACC stick around? Clemson, Florida State, North Carolina all voted against this move. So particularly for football reasons, it'll be interesting to see if Clemson and Florida State stick around. But this is not my ACC of youth. This is not my parents' ACC anymore. And the Pac-12 is now a corpse. Which is crazy. But that's college athletics. I want to touch quickly on high school athletics before we get into this interview that we got with a special guest. So I just got a quick thing on high school athletics. Talked about the money going around in college and how that's impacting both player movement, college movement from conference to conference. And we see the same thing in high school athletics. You see athletes being able to move around pretty freely. In California, you see athletes going from school to school. And if they play the address game right, they don't have to sit out. And even those who don't change address will take the sit out, you know, to move to a better perceived situation. And my only warning to those who would both move schools for athletic purposes or hold their athlete back a year for athletic purposes is to just be careful who you trust. I hope that those families who put everything on the line for athletics are really leaning on people who give an honest opinion of the athlete 
Because what I hate to see are the hold back for one year and sometimes even the double hold back. Kids being two years older than their graduating class and it not turn out in that D1 scholarship that they're looking for. And now you've just got an older kid who now has to figure it out. Because the money ain't that life-changing. And that will dry up quick. So, be careful out here. Because there are predatory coaches. There are predatory agent runners. Trainers. And again, even some schools. And I put that in air quotes. Because sometimes it's really just athletic warehouses. We've gotten a school accreditation. Who will prey on athletes until there's nothing left to give and then they move on to the next and it's a cycle that will continue so keep those eyes open and be aware when it comes to the life of your student athlete we're going to get into student athletics what it looks like on tv with our guests coming up next All right, it is a pleasure today. This is a treat for me personally because my guest today here in Offense Hours is someone whose work I have admired for many, many years. It is work that's not only been entertaining, but educational. So whether it is a different world, whether it is get on the bus, whether it is dancing in September, um, there's always nuggets of information that you can get um, from this artist's work. I've had the pleasure to get to know both he and his better half um, and, and just be able to be in community with them. So it is a pleasure to welcome to Taking Notes with Dr. John Carroll, Reggie Rock Bythewood. How are you today, sir? Very, very good. Um, uh, very well, thank you. And, you know, always a pleasure to, to kick it with you. So I'm going to pretend that we're not on a podcast and that is yes. just you and I. yes. Yes, that's very much the tenor that I hope um, whenever we have people on the podcast, that they will just be able to relax and, and act like nobody else is listening. And so this is where I want to start, you know, and go today with you, Reg, because uh, I've been a fan of Swagger from the beginning. You know, any person who's a, who's a student athlete um, can certainly relate. So, you know, there's that piece of it that certainly was an instant connection to my life. You add to it that it is loosely based on the experiences of, you know, an NBA icon at this point in Kevin Durant. So that, you know, if you're a hooper, you, you're drawn to it even further. The idea that, it, you know, it, it'll shed some light on, you know, his journey. But then to me personally, there's the added piece that, it, that it's you and knowing, again, the quality of projects that you put together and how you approach a project. I want to start with how did you come to this? And when did you know that you would be able to do it in a way that made sense for Reggie Rock Bythewood, um, as opposed to someone else who might take the you know story in a different direction? Sure. Well, so in 2018, I got a call from Imagine Entertainment, and they asked me if I would take a meeting with with Kevin Durant. 
you know, Brian Grazer is one of the producers on this series and um, Brian produced Friday Night Lights and, and you know, many successful shows. Um, had, a, had a meeting with Kevin Durant and they were just sort of hanging out somewhere. And then this idea of doing a series inspired by KD's um, grassroots basketball years, you know, his, um, his AAU, AAU experience was sort of like the general concept they had. Um, I initially wasn't that excited about taking this meeting and, but then I thought, you know, it's KD, they're gonna fly me out to, you know, Golden State, let me go check it out. You know, so I went out there, um, went to his house, met with him, met with a guy named Rich Kleinman, who's KD's business partner. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we just started talking. We just started talking about his life. And so here's, here was the turn. I mean, look, he was very open. He was very vulnerable. But the thing that happened is that he said a few things that made me, made me feel a connection to my personal life. You know, so both of us grew up in single parent households. Um, he grew up in the DMV. I grew up in the Bronx. Um, and, and the thing is, Doc, when I was coming up, living in the hood, but I was also on a soap opera, man. I was happy, right? So I was on a TV show. Mm-hmm. So the reality is everybody in the neighborhood knew me. So when KD would talk about his experiences of like everybody knowing him, we just started to, like, I started just to find some personal connection. And that's the thing is um, even though I was hearing his story, I was finding connections to my personal story. And a couple of things became apparent for me also is because I am also, um, you know, father of two young men, both who are Harvard-Westlake alum. Um, I didn't want it to be a period piece. I wanted to do a contemporary story so that I could deal with some of the current issues that I saw my young sons uh, dealing with at the time. Mm-hmm. I love that. And and that, you know, comes through again. I know you and I know your boys uh, who are now young men um, yes. and, and, you know, was a witness to to that journey. So, you know, I can say I'm sure that gives me an extra connection to the story. But again, I can also say objectively that when you talk about making it contemporary um, and something that is very much present, given that I now have a teenager in the AAU circuit, all of that, you know, and the, and the things that you cover very much uh, hit home. So it's interesting that, that all those pieces came together um, for you um, so that you could lay lay your fingerprints on this. I'm interested, you know, given that you've been a creator for a long time and you've gone, you know, what I guess would, many would consider the traditional route in the creative world from writer, you know, baby writer to now being someone who is able to have say, be an exec producer. What are your thoughts on, you know, the KDs of the world? Uh, LeBron has a production company. Steph Curry has a production company. And folks really... Um, taking the opportunity, certainly in the athletic world, to move into the entertainment space to be able to, you know, share these narratives and share these stories? Um, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, look, you know, first of all, 
Um, yeah, it's great that KD, LeBron, you know, before them, you know, Magic Johnson did that. But I mean, listen, man, we go back to the black exploitation era, man. Jim Brown, Fred mm-hmm. Williams, Fred Williamson, the Hammer, a former NFL player. You know, he had a production company, produced a lot of movies. So, you know, it's, I think in many ways it's been an organic space for a lot of athletes to uh, dabble in, in this field. And some have done it very successfully. Um, and, you know, for me, um, you know, I only thing is, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure what, 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 what you mean, John, when you say a, a conventional route, because everyone's journey is, is so different. You know, I didn't go to film school. You know, I, I really started, um, I, st- I started a theater company, man, when I was mm-hmm. like 21 years old. And, um, and we started doing plays. We started producing plays that I wrote, you know, and then um, eventually uh, people heard of my work and, and I applied in the Disney Fellowship Program, which led me to uh, coming out to LA and eventually I got in a different world. and. And, and what was really interesting, well, I'll just, just sort of just tell you real quick. Um, when I started in the industry, man, I know it's going to, this is like prehistoric for a lot of people that's going to be listening to this. Yo, but it was three networks. Mm-hmm. It was CBS, NBC, ABC. That's it. Right. And then it was like a big deal. Then Fox became like this fourth yeah. network. Yeah. So you cut where we are now. It's crazy. But, you know, you know, we started up, there was very few black writers writing a TV. Um, and specifically, um, it was very, very challenging to break into a drama space because at that point in time, everyone thought that black dramas could not work. So they were only black comedies, you know? So it's really been a really interesting uh, evolution to be a part of and the witness to, 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 to be where we are now. And, um, but I think it's really great that there are a lot more opportunities. There's a lot, of challenges that um, that that we are faced with with streaming, and you know a lot of you know it's really great that um, you do something in streaming, and like overnight it's in millions of households. It's 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 global, you know. But obviously, also as you know, we're on strike, and so there's a lot of things that we're trying to correct with streaming services as well. Yeah, and I love that you're a person that I can speak to. Um, and you can get checked every now and again. So for me, when I was thinking conventional, it was the idea that, you know, for most black creatives in the, in the writing space, I know they did have to either go through that kind of diversity program machine and then work their way up as writers. Um, in contrast to what you see, and I, I know you can think of examples of folks who, you know, write a great script, get with the right streaming company partner, and now, you know, they can skip some of that. They can be you know, show running, you know, as their first gig. So that was, that was the contrast that I was trying to draw there. Yeah, it's just a little different because, um, um, you, you know, and, and, and I'm always going to look through it from a different lens, right. I'm from a different lens because again, most of the people that came up when I came up, um, I feel like myself and Gina were anomaly, like most people and then it's, you know, they were on a different world. And their next gigs were like comedy. You know, you just stayed in doing comedy, which is which is great. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just I had an appetite to do drama and I also had an appetite to do feature. So I really wanted to work in every medium. And uh, you know, the thing is it's it's 
almost feels like not a big deal right now to sort of say, hey, somebody wrote a comedy, somebody's writing drama, somebody's writing a feature. But back then, it was sort of like you're a comedy writer, or you're a drama writer, or you're a screenwriter. And every time that I felt like I went to a different um, form, it was almost like you had to press reset. Mm. You know, it's been a real, real, very, very, very interesting and very interesting journey. But, um, you know, it's also been a, a great journey. And I'm just very happy that it's brought, brought me here, brought us the swagger. And, um, and obviously, it's, it's really great to talk about swagger with you because some people may have missed it. But in season two, there's a card in there that says special thanks to Dr. John Carroll. I hope yeah. you saw it. I, I have seen it. And again, you know how uh, excited I was to, to share, you know, whatever uh, your writer's room wanted to know uh, that I could, you know, bring bring to to the project because I was a fan even before um, that call. And I, I'm glad we're steering back to Swagger because I didn't want to get too, too far afoot. Um, because, again, I really love the way that you put, you know, Bythewood footprints, you know, all over this and really brought life and heart to you know a story that many could simply just reduce to a basketball um narrative and it was way way more than that so i encourage folks to you know go out and watch you know both seasons now available on uh apple tv and we look forward to the third i want to zoom in on a particular episode um with you reg because this one to me after i watched it is episode five in season two is called are we free and i just remember vividly watching it um and saying to you know my wife this 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 is this is red rock bythewood all day like if you not even knowing that you were involved i feel like a person knows who you are watches episode five they know issue almost like it, if you hear a michael jackson lyric you know and so you know the 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 episode for for those who haven't seen yet centers around um team swagger and we're not going to get into why they are team swagger that at this point but they're team swagger and they're going to play at a youth detention facility um and they interact with the young people and it's a world that i have never seen explored you know, on TV before, and certainly the way you did it and humanizing, you know, the young people who found themselves in this center. And so my question for you is, you know, what was your goal when you when you went to the writer's room whiteboard, all the writer's rooms have whiteboards, and you started to break it down, you know, what were some of the major goals that you had for, you know, what this episode was going to do and push the story forward? Well, let me just rewind a bit then. Okay. So can you know kind of get a sense of of how it evolved because it was not, you know, when when we were going to season two, there were a lot of um, hours of the show that I that I knew we were going to do. Like I knew a lot of the storyline. Mm-hmm. I didn't know in the outset that we were going to do Are We Free, which, you know, really became, you know, certainly one of my favorites in, in season two. And, and directorially, you know, I think my favorite thing I've directed. Um, but 
I, I have something in my past that's always stuck with me, which is, you know, in my 20s, I would do, um, I'd bring theater to various places, institutions, homeless shelters, you know, nursing homes. And one time we went to this detention center and we performed one of my plays. And leaving there, the guys were standing at the fence while we were driving off. And it was just an image that always haunted me. And every so often, I always think about that experience. I mean, what do I want to say about this? Anything I want to write about it? Well, also, one of the writers in our writer's room, very talented young lady named Raquel Baker, she was incarcerated in her, in her teens. It's something she says was stupid and was locked up for a stint and really had to kind of learn and understand that, you know, she wasn't her worst mistake. So we just somewhere just, I don't know, I just had this thought, like, wow, I wonder what would happen if our guys played basketball at a detention center. And so I brought it to the room and we talked about it and I decided, you know, hey, Raquel, come write this with me. And we really wanted to do, do a couple of things. We wanted to do a narrative that challenged our perspectives in terms of young men, and particularly like young black men that are locked up. I mean, a couple, you know, number one, um, the number one mental health provider in the United States, the number one provider in the United States for people with mental illness are detention centers, prisons, jails. And that's something that came out of our research. We really felt like we needed to let people know and address that. Also just really wanted to challenge the point of view that if you make a mistake that your life is doomed, that there's nothing, there's, there's no corner that you can turn. And so much of it was just really challenging this perspective that people who are incarcerated are just absolutely horrible people that cannot have any sort of redeeming qualities to contribute to society. So that was a, a major, major component. But then so much of it also is we, we just, we went on a discovery and we wanted people to feel this discovery in writing it. Um, when we were location scouting, you know, I was with Raquel Baker and with one of our producers who we also know, E. Monique Floyd, and we were there and while we were location scouting and we we're in a, in, a, in a live jail, this um, woman uh, comes in off of, a, off of a bus, the street clothes, and she's shackled by her hands, shackled by her feet and kind of comes in shuffling. And seeing that it was like a very emotional moment for all of us. And I, I felt like, okay, now I want to put this I want to put some characters in a script where we see them go through this process of, of coming indoctrinated in their new home. Um, so there's like a lot that we wanted to say with this, um, but ultimately it was challenging this point of view um, of, you know, how can we still um, become viable members of society if we make a mistake, but also challenge the point of view of like what sort of freedoms that we have even if you're not locked up. And um, it really aligns with the storyline that we have going on and, and swagger, you know? So there was that. And then quite frankly, um, John, like 
you know, you accurately say that we are not just a basketball show. We do want to challenge perspectives. We do want it to be socially relevant. But, but the basketball got behind. And there was something exciting about, wow, we're going to do a game here. I wanted to be an outdoor game because all of our games were in interior inside of a gymnasium. And I really love this juxtaposition of playing a basketball game on an outdoor court where there's fencing around, but there was something about the game was going to be feel more freer than, than all the other games in our series. And I don't know if you noticed this, John, and picked up on it, but the entire basketball game is is an all-in-one shot. Like we never edited, we never cut. And so it was really as much as we had so many social things that we needed to hit, we needed to say, we also just wanted to shoot like the hottest basketball scene ever and really felt really great about what we accomplished. And it's great. And this is why I love when I can talk to people who I have a relationship with, you know, have some have some rhythm with because I just find, you know, the rhythm of the talk goes where it needs to go. And that's exactly where I was going to go next was the basketball. Um, and I've heard, you know, your wife Gina talk about this as it pertained to loving basketball um, and always wanting to have, you know, an authenticness to it to the point where in loving basketball, if you pay close attention, you can see Gina Prince Bythewood dive for a ball. Fun fact. And in swagger, you know, the thing that immediately sticks out when in the first from the first episode is that you look at you know the character jace carson who's our main character played by isaiah hill and you're like oh he can ball like this wasn't this wasn't will smith in the fresh prince of bel-air you know you could imagine that didn't take too many like this dude can actually ball um the same for you know jason rivera torres who's actually i hit you up when i saw you know he committed he's going to vanderbilt Play with Jerry Stackhouse, like this is a real dude, you know, and it just was like that across, you know, the whole show. Like you did not think that you were watching basketball scenes as filler. So the question becomes, you know, how important was that to you in shaping the show, casting the show, and did you ever worry that, you know, you'd have to sacrifice something on the acting end to get the authenticity of the basketball? So authenticity is a huge word for our show. It's a huge part of the vision, and. The reason why the basketball has to be authentic, I mean, look, KD is, a, is an exact producer on the show, yeah. so he's not going to want the basketball to be whack anyway. Right. But the other, other real reason it needs to be authentic is because you got to believe it. If you don't believe the basketball, right. how are you going to do the story, right? So right. really approach it that way. So in, in casting this, we just did, we, we had a dual process. We looked at actors and that we thought we might be able to train to play basketball. And we looked at basketball players who we thought we might be able to train as actors. And so we, you know, had a huge search and had some actors come in, had some real ball players come in. But Isaiah, right out the gate, led the way um, because, you know, he doesn't just dunk. I like to say he like dunks with that hot sauce, you know, yes. and electric and he's charismatic. And so we got him with an acting coach. And he went through an audition process. And then there were some actors and we got them some basketball coaching and Isaiah just got it, man. He just got it. And I like to 
say, as, as I've told him a couple of times now, you know, he started out as a basketball player who can act, and he's really involved into an actor who happens to play basketball. Absolutely, because what you ask of him, you know, in season two, from an acting standpoint and, and some of the beats that he has to hit and moments he has to deliver in emotionally is, is definitely a step up from season one. So, you know, that yeah. to me signals a certain trust that you must have had that when you're putting the pen to the paper, you know, or fingers to the keyboard, you knew that he could deliver on certain things. Well, the other thing that's interesting, you know, they, it, it took a minute to finish season one because of the pandemic, right? So we had shut down for like six months, got back up, finished out the season. And then it took a minute for us to get back in production of season two. We had to wait for the pickup, then we had the writer's room. And so there's a big transition from season one to season two, which is like how, how tall they are, you know, and how big yeah. they are. So they definitely grew up, you know, but in growing up, the other thing that's just really interesting, like a lot of times with young athletes, not just young athletes, like 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 young men, you have a young man, and sometimes kids become more guarded as they get older. Mm -hmm. You know, what was really interesting about Isaiah and some of my cast members, they had more access to their vulnerability. And so, you know, it was just really amazing because um Isaiah was just allowed to bring, he was just able to bring so much more vulnerability to his performance. And it was just really, really amazing and took advantage of it. Yeah, I, I loved it all. The, yeah, I loved it all. The thing I want to get you out on, um, and one more plug for Swagger on Apple TV, two seasons worth, um, great casting, great acting. The basketball is fired, the acting is fired, delivers on everything there. So this episode really is focusing on, you know, student athletes and, and what's going on, you know, in the world for student athletes and how they have to navigate the world, you know, certainly from when we were growing up, you know, and just trying to, like, say, navigate hoods and, and stay true to our, our crafts, whether it was acting for you, certainly swimming for me. You know, now, you know, student athletes have to build in this whole technology layer, uh, the Internet. Um, you see some high schools even getting NIL deals now. So I'm curious, given the folks that you were around, and I'm thinking of folks like Jason in particular, what were some of your takeaways from like, you know, what young people, student athletes in particular, but you're also dealing with young actors, you know, what is it that they have to navigate, you know, these days? And, and what are the things that, you know, adults in their, in their lives need to be aware of and be sensitive to? Okay, well, so I'm going to speak to that. And I'm going to speak to one other thing really quickly. Go for it. Yeah, student athletes, certainly they have to, you know, I mean, one of the things that's really challenging is to understand that everyone, adults, young adults, children, like you have days where you, where you quote unquote fail, where you don't really hit the mark the way that you would like, but um, you know, as an artist, um, you want to, um, you know, if I have a day where like the scene doesn't go the way I would like to go, kind of just quickly analyze it, make some course correction and keep moving and just keep elevating and 
you really want student athletes to be able to do that. You also want the coaches. You want the coaches to also be able to talk to student athletes, be able to motivate student athletes in a way that builds them up and doesn't tear them down. I've heard, I've seen coaches talk to young athletes in a way that if somebody talked to them, they'd probably run away crying. Like you have to respect young men, build them up, and you can do that and still challenge them. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, you know, as a parent of a, of a student athlete, you know, our, our son Toussaint plays baseball at UCLA. Um, Toussaint needs to know we love him when he hits a single, triple, double. We love him if he strikes help. You know, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's his journey, and we're we're there to support his journey as opposed to him having to support our vision of him. So that's one of the things. But I think most importantly, what you see in Swagger, particularly in season two, is you see young men navigating and a woman, you know, navigating their way to, to manhood to adulthood. Mm -hmm. And they're in a prep school environment. One of the reasons why we spoke to you and so many other great educators at Harvard Westlake is because we really wanted to hold a mirror up to society. We're using this prep school institution as a way to just look at America, hold a mirror up to America and say um, that there are challenges that, that we face that are specific to our culture and, and just really understand that there's an urgency of community, you know, that will help build not just our athletes up, but build our, our, our young men and young women up. And, and so what we like to say with Swagger is really about having a cause bigger than yourself. Um, and, and it's really the, the, the ability to execute that cause that gives you Swagger, but none of us get to where we get to alone. Amen to that. I think that's a great place to end. And, and, and just to give, say one more bouquet of flowers before we get off, you know, you talked about the, the coaches and support people who, you know, should be tasked to not only, you know, push and encourage and hold accountable student athletes, but also to reassure them um, that there is love. And I think you most definitely among the many things you got right about the show, hit that with O'Shea Jackson Jr., um, you know, playing coach Ike um, and just the way that he was there for his whole squad through thick and thin um, from their journey when we first see them as 14-year-olds through to the end, you know, and I'm not going to say where it ends, but through through the culmination of, of season two. To the point, you know, and this is, again, where my personal connection is to the story as an athlete, as a coach, I think, you know, just continue to bring me closer. At the culmination, the, the final episode, I will say, you know, my eyes got a little sweaty, you know, because right. you, when you see the coach sharing that moment with his students, you know, it is one that as a parent you can relate to, as a coach you can relate to, as an athlete who's probably had a relationship with a coach you can relate to. So, again, that is something that I think many, many folks who are not even just student athletes or involved with athletics can relate to. So, Reg, we right. salute you for it. I'm going to Thank continue you. to promote it. I'm thinking now that I do have this podcast space for season three, I might have to do like the play-by-play, -play, you know, yeah. follow-ups every, follow every every episode to just have the right. kind of behind-the-scenes thing because, you know, there's always so much meat on the bone with every episode. So, Reggie Rock Bythewood, I thank you for coming into Office Hours today. 
and I look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. And as we as we as we gave it in in, in our season, I'll say it here. Shout out to Bale ACC. Hey, I saw the sweatshirt. We love that. We yeah, love that. Yeah. Take care. Okay. <laughs> We went along with Reggie, so I want to get right into the honor roll. I want to give a special salute to Lieutenant Antonio Bailey of Edward Waters University, who was able to redirect Ryan Christopher Paul Metter, who pulled up to campus intent on killing black people. And due to Lieutenant Bailey's actions, along with other students, Mr. Paul Metter was not able to bring violence to the campus. So we appreciate him, we salute him with this week's honor roll. Hope everyone had a good long weekend. Enjoyed some time with family. We'll see you next week on Taking Notes with Dr. John Carroll. The views expressed by John Carroll and his guest in the preceding podcast are solely that of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, companies, or other associated parties.